Chapter 29, Part 1 of Principles of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Principles of Geology by Charles Lyell. Section 70. Chapter 29, Earthquakes, Continued. Earthquake of Java, 1772, truncation of a lofty cone. Saint Domingo, 1770. Lisbon, 1755. Great area over which the shocks extended. Retreat of the sea. Proposed explanations. Conception Bay, 1750. Permanent elevation. Peru, 1746. Java, 1699. Rivers obstructed by landslips. Subsidence in Sicily, 1693. Malacca, 1693. Jamaica, 1692. Large tracts engulfed. Portion of Port Royal sunk. Amount of change in the last 150 years. Elevation and subsidence of land in Bay of Bai. Evidence of the same afforded by the Temple of Serapis. In the preceding chapters we have considered a small part only of those earthquakes which have occurred during the last 70 years, of which accurate and authentic descriptions happen to have been recorded. In examining those of earlier date, we find their number so great that allusion can be made to a few only respecting which information of peculiar geological interest has been obtained. Java, 1772, truncation of a lofty cone. In the year 1772, Papanda Yang, formerly one of the loftiest volcanoes in the islands of Java, was in eruption. Before all the inhabitants on the declivities of the mountain could save themselves by flight, the ground began to give way, and a great part of the volcano fell in and disappeared. It is estimated that an extent of ground of the mountain itself and its immediate environs, 15 miles long and full six broad, was by this commotion swallowed up in the bowels of the earth. Forty villages were destroyed, some being engulfed and some covered by the substances thrown out on this occasion, and 2,957 of the inhabitants perished. A proportionate number of cattle were also killed, and most of the plantations of cotton, indigo, and coffee in the adjacent districts were buried under the volcanic matter. This catastrophe appears to have resembled, although on a grander scale, that of the ancient Vesuvius in the year 79. The cone was reduced in height from 9,000 to about 5,000 feet, and as vapor still escaped from the crater on its summit, a new cone may one day rise out of the ruins of the ancient mountain, as the modern Vesuvius has risen from the remains of Soma. Saint Domingo, 1770. During a tremendous earthquake which destroyed a great part of Saint Domingo, innumerable fissures were caused throughout the islands, from which mephitic vapors emanated and produced an epidemic. Hot springs burst forth in many places where there had been no water before, but after a time they ceased to flow. In a previous earthquake in November 1751, a violent shock destroyed the capital, Port-au-Prince, and part of the coast, twenty leagues in length, sunk down, and has ever since formed a bay of the sea. Hindustan, 1762. The town of Chittagong in Bengal was violently shaken by an earthquake on the 2nd of April, 1762, the earth opening in many places and throwing up water and mud of a sulfurous smell. At a place called Bardavan, a large river was dried up, and at Bachara, near the sea, a tract of ground sunk down and 200 people with all their cattle were lost. It is said that 60 square miles of the Chittagong coast suddenly and permanently subsided during this earthquake, and that Ses Lung Tom, one of the Mug Mountains, entirely disappeared, and another sunk so low that its summit only remained visible. Four hills are also described as having been variously rent asunder, leaving open chasms from 30 to 60 feet in width. 
towns which subsided several cubits were overflowed with water, among others Deep Gong, which was submerged to a depth of seven cubits. Two volcanoes are said to have opened in the Sectacunda hills. The shock was also felt at Calcutta. While the Chittagong coast was sinking, a corresponding rise of the ground took place at the islands of Ramri and Acheduba. Lisbon, 1755. In no part of the volcanic region of southern Europe has so tremendous an earthquake occurred in modern times as that which began on the 1st of November, 1755, at Lisbon. A sound of thunder was heard underground, and immediately afterwards a violent shock threw down the greater part of that city. In the course of about six minutes, 60,000 persons perished. The sea first retired and laid the bar dry. It then rolled in, rising 50 feet or more above its ordinary level. The mountains of Arabida, Estrella, Julio, Marvan, and Sintra, being some of the largest in Portugal, were impetuously shaken, as it were, from their very foundations. And some of them opened at their summits, which were split and rent in a wonderful manner, huge masses of them being thrown down into the subjacent valleys. Flames are related to have issued from these mountains, which are supposed to have been electric. They are also said to have smoked, but vast clouds of dust may have given rise to this appearance. The area over which this convulsion extended is very remarkable. It has been computed, says Humboldt, that on the 1st of November, 1755, a portion of the Earth's surface four times greater than the extent of Europe was simultaneously shaken. The shock was felt in the Alps and on the coast of Sweden, in small island lakes on the shores of the Baltic, in Thuringia and in the flat country of northern Germany. The thermal springs of Toplitz dried up and again returned, inundating everything with water discolored by ochre. In the islands of Antigua, Barbados and Martinique in the West Indies, where the tide usually rises little more than two feet, it suddenly rose above twenty feet, the water being discolored and of an inky blackness. The movement was also sensible in the Great Lakes of Canada, at Algiers and Fez in the north of Africa, the agitation of the earth was as violent as in Spain and Portugal, and, at the distance of eight leagues from Morocco, a village with the inhabitants to the number of about 8,000 or 10,000 persons are said to have been swallowed up, the earth soon afterwards closing over them. Subsidence of the Key Among other extraordinary events related to have occurred at Lisbon during the catastrophe was the subsidence of a new key built entirely of marble at an immense expense. A great concourse of people had collected there for safety, as a spot where they might be beyond the reach of falling ruins. But suddenly the key sank down with all the people on it, and not one of the dead bodies ever floated to the surface. A great number of boats and small vessels anchored near it, all full of people, were swallowed up, as in a whirlpool. No fragments of these wrecks ever rose again to the surface, and the water in the place where the key had stood is stated in many accounts to be unfathomable but Whitebird says he ascertained it to be 100 fathoms. Circumstantial as are the contemporary narratives, I learned from a correspondent, Mr. F. Freeman, in 1841, that no part of the Tagus was then more than 30 feet deep at high tide, and an examination of the position of the new key and the memorials preserved of the time and manner in which it was built rendered the statement of so great a subsidence in 1755 quite unintelligible. Perhaps a deep, narrow chasm, such as was before described in Calabria, opened and closed again in the bed of the Tagus, after swallowing up some incumbent buildings and vessels. We have already seen that such openings may collapse after the shock suddenly, or, in places where the strata are of a soft and yielding materials, very gradually. According to the observations made at Lisbon in 1837 by Mr. Sharp, the destroying effects of this earthquake were confined to the tertiary strata, 
and were most violently on the blue clay on which the lower part of the city is constructed. Not a building, he says, on the secondary limestone or the basalt was injured. Shocks felt at sea. The shock was felt at sea, on the deck of a ship to the west of Lisbon, and produced very much the same sensation as on dry land. Of St. Lucar, the captain of the ship Nancy, felt his vessel so violently shaken that he thought he had struck the ground, but on having the lead, found a great depth of water. Captain Clark from Denia, in latitude 36 degrees 24 minutes north, between 9 and 10 in the morning, had his ship shaken and strained as if she had struck upon a rock, so that the seams of the deck opened and the compass was overturned in the binnacle. Another ship, 40 leagues west of St. Vincent, experienced so violent a concussion that the men were thrown a foot and a half perpendicularly up from the deck. Rate at which the movement traveled. The agitation of lakes, rivers, and springs in Great Britain was remarkable. At Loch Lomond, in Scotland, for example, the water without the least apparent cause rose against its banks and then subsided below its usual level. The greatest perpendicular height of this swell was two feet four inches. It is said that the movement of this earthquake was undulatory and that it traveled at the rate of 20 miles a minute, its velocity being calculated by the intervals between the time when the first shock was felt at Lisbon and its time of occurrence at other distant places. Great Wave and Retreat of the Sea A great wave swept over the coast of Spain and is said to have been 60 feet high at Cadiz. At Tangier in Africa, it rose and fell 18 times on the coast. At Funchal in Madeira, it rose full 15 feet perpendicular above high-water mark, although the tide, which ebbs and flows there 7 feet, was then at half-ebb. Besides entering the city and committing great havoc, it overflowed other seaports in the island. At Kinsale in Ireland, a body of water rushed into the harbour, whirled round several vessels and poured into the marketplace. It was before stated that the sea first retired at Lisbon, and this retreat of the ocean from the shore at the commencement of an earthquake and its subsequent return in a violent wave is a common occurrence. In order to account for the phenomenon, Michel imagined a subsidence at the bottom of the sea from the giving way of the roof of some cavity in consequence of a vacuum produced by the condensation of steam. Such condensation, he observes, might be the first effect of the introduction of a large body of water into fissures and cavities already filled with steam, before there has been sufficient time for the heat of the incandescent lava to turn so large a supply of water into steam, which being so accomplished causes a greater explosion. Another proposed explanation is the sudden rise of the land which would cause the sea to abandon immediately the ancient line of coast, and if the shore, after being thus heaved up, should fall again to its original level, the ocean would return. This theory, however, will not account for the facts observed during the Lisbon earthquake, for the retreat preceded the wave not only on the coast of Portugal, but also at the islands of Madeira and several other places. If the upheaving of the coast of Portugal had caused the retreat, the motion of the waters when propagated to Madeira would have produced a wave previous to the retreat. Nor could the motion of the waters at Madeira have been caused by a different local earthquake, for the shock traveled from Lisbon to Madeira in two hours, which agrees with the time which it required to reach other places equally distant. The following is another solution of the problem which has been offered. Suppose a portion of the bed of the sea to be suddenly upheaved. The first effect will be to raise over the elevated part of a body of water, the momentum of which will carry it much above the level it will afterwards assume causing a drought or a receding of the water from the neighboring coasts, followed immediately by the return of the displaced water, which will also be impelled by its momentum much further and higher on the coast than its former level. 
Mr. Darwin, when alluding to similar waves on the coast of Chile, states his opinion that the whole phenomenon is due to a common undulation in the water proceeding from a line or point of disturbance some little way distant. If the waves, he says, sent off from the paddles of a steam vessel be watched breaking on the sloping shore of a still river, the water will be seen first to retire two or three feet, and then to return in little breakers, precisely analogous to those consequent on an earthquake. He also adds that the earthquake wave occurs some time after the shock, the water at first retiring both from the shores of the mainland and of outlying islands, and then returning in mountainous breakers. Their size is modified by the form of the neighboring coast, for it is ascertained in South America that places situated at the head of shoaling bays have suffered most, whereas towns like Valparaíso, seated close on the border of a profound ocean, have never been inundated, though severely shaken by earthquakes. More recently, February 1846. Mr. Mallet, in his memoir above cited, has endeavoured to bring to bear on this difficult subject the more advanced knowledge obtained of late years respecting the true theory of waves. He conceives that when the origin of the shock is beneath the deep ocean, one wave is propagated through the land, and another, moving with inferior velocity, is formed on the surface of the ocean. This last rolls in upon the land long after the earth wave has arrived and spent itself. However irreconcilable it may be to our common notions of solid bodies, to imagine them capable of transmitting with such extreme velocity motions analogous to tidal waves, it seems nevertheless certain that such undulations are produced, and it is supposed that when the shock passes a given point, each particle of the solid earth describes an ellipse in space. The facility with which all the particles of a solid mass can be made to vibrate may be illustrated, says Gay-Lussac, by many familiar examples. If we apply the ear to one end of a long wooden beam, and listen attentively when the other end is struck by a pin's head. We hear the shock distinctly, which shows that every fibre throughout the whole length has been made to vibrate. The rattling of carriages on the pavement shakes the largest edifices. And, in the quarries underneath some quarters in Paris, it is found that the movement is communicated through a considerable thickness of rock. The great sea wave originating directly over the center of disturbance is propagated, as Michel correctly stated, in every direction, like the circle upon a pond when a pebble is dropped into it, the different rates at which it moves depending, as he also suggested, on variations in the depth of the water. This wave of the sea, says Mr. Mallet, is raised by the impulse of the shock immediately below it, which in great earthquakes lifts up the ground two or three feet perpendicularly. The velocity of the shock, or earth wave, is greater because it depends upon a function of the elasticity of the crust of the earth, whereas the velocity of the sea wave depends upon a function of the depth of the sea. Although the shock in its passage under the deep ocean gives no trace of its progress, it no sooner gets into soundings or shallow water than it gives rise to another and smaller wave of the sea. It carries, as it were, upon its back this lesser aqueous undulation a long narrow ridge of water which corresponds in form and velocity to itself being pushed up by the partial elevation of the bottom. It is this small wave, called technically the forced sea wave, which communicates the earthquake shock to ships at sea, as if they had struck upon a rock. It breaks upon a coast at the same moment that the shock reaches it, and sometimes it may cause an apparent slight recession from the shore, followed by its flowing up somewhat higher than the usual tide mark. This will happen where the beach is very sloping, as is usual where the sea is shallow, for then the velocity of the low, flat earth wave is such that it slips, as it were, from under the undulation in the fluid above. 
It does this at the moment of reaching the beach, which it elevates by a vertical height equal to its own, and as instantly lets drop again to its former level. While the shock propagated through the solid earth has thus travelled with extra rapidity to the land, the great sea wave has been following at a slower pace, though advancing at the rate of several miles a minute. It consists in the deep ocean of a long, low swell of enormous volume, having an equal slope before and behind, and that so gentle that it might pass under a ship without being noticed. But when it reaches the edge of soundings, its front slope, like that of a tidal wave under similar circumstances, becomes short and steep while its rear slope is long and gentle. If there be water of some depth close into shore, this great wave may roll in long after the shock and do little damage. But if the shore be shelving, there will be first a retreat of the water, and then the wave will break upon the beach and roll in far upon the land. The various opinions which have been offered by Michel and later writers respecting the remote causes of earthquake shocks in the interior of the earth will more properly be discussed in the 32nd chapter. Chile, 1751 On the 24th of May, 1751, the ancient town of Concepcion, otherwise called Penco, was totally destroyed by an earthquake and the sea rolled over it. The ancient port was rendered entirely useless, and the inhabitants built another town about ten miles from the sea coast in order to be beyond the reach of similar inundations. At the same time, a colony recently settled on the seashore of Juan Fernandez was almost entirely overwhelmed by a wave which broke upon the shore. It has been already stated that in 1835 or 84 years after the destruction of Penco, the same coast was overwhelmed by a similar flood from the sea during an earthquake, and it is also known that 21 years before, or in 1730, a like wave rolled over its fated shores, in which many of the inhabitants perished. A series of similar catastrophes has also been tracked back as far as the year 1590, beyond which we have no memorials save those of oral tradition. Molina, who has recorded the customs and legends of the aborigines, tells us that the Araucarian Indians, a tribe inhabiting the country between the Andes and the Pacific, including the part now called Chile, had among them a tradition of a great deluge in which only a few persons were saved who took refuge upon a high mountain called Teg Teg, the Thundering, which had three points. Whenever a violent earthquake occurs, these people fly for safety to the mountains, assigning as a reason that they are fearful after the shock that the sea will again return and deluge the world. Notwithstanding the tendency of writers in his day to refer all traditionary inundations to one remote period, Molina remarks that this flood of the Araucarians was probably very different from that of Noah. We have indeed no means of conjecturing how long this same tribe had flourished in Chile, but we can scarcely doubt that if its experience reached back even for three or four centuries, several inroads of the oceans must have occurred within that period. But the memory of a succession of physical events, similar in kind though distinct in time, can never be preserved by a people destitute of written annals. Before two or three generations have passed away, all dates are forgotten, and even the events themselves, unless they have given origin to some customs or religious rites and ceremonies. Oftentimes the incidents of many different earthquakes and floods become blended together in the same narrative, and in such cases the single catastrophe is described in terms so exaggerated or is so disguised by mythological fictions as to be utterly valueless to the antiquary or philosopher. Proofs of elevation of 24 feet During a late survey of Conception Bay, Captain Beachy and Sir E. Belcher discovered that the ancient harbour, which formerly admitted all large merchant vessels which went round the Cape, is now occupied by a reef of sandstone 
certain points of which project above the sea at low water, the greater part being very shallow. A tract of a mile and a half in length, where according to the report of the inhabitants the water was formerly four or five fathoms deep, is now a shoal, consisting, as our hydrographers found, of hard sandstone, so that it cannot be supposed to have been formed by recent deposits of the river Biobio, an arm of which carries down loose micaceous sand into the same bay. It is impossible at this distance of time to affirm that the bed of the sea was uplifted at once to the height of twenty-four feet during the single earthquake of 1751, because of other movements may have occurred subsequently. But it is said that ever since the shock of 1751, no vessels have been able to approach within a mile and a half of the ancient port of Penco. In proof of the former elevation of the coast near Penco, our surveyors found above high-water mark an enormous bed of shells of the same species as those now living in the bay, filled with micaceous sand, like that which the Biobio now conveys to the bay. These shells, as well as others, which cover the adjoining hills of mica schists to the height of several hundred feet, have lately been examined by experienced conchologists in London, and identified with those taken at the same time in a living state from the bay and its neighbourhood. Ulloa, therefore, was perfectly correct in his statement that, at various heights above the sea between Talcahuano and Concepcion, mines were found of various sorts of shells used for lime of the very same kinds as those found in the adjoining sea. Among them he mentions the great muscle called Shoros, and two other which he describes. Some of these, he says, are entire, and others broken. They occur at the bottom of the sea in four, six, ten, or twelve fathom water, where they adhere to a sea plant called Cochayuyo. They are taken in dredges and have no resemblance to those found on the shore or in shallow water. Yet, beds of them occur at various heights on the hills. I was the more pleased with the sight, he adds, as it appeared to me a convincing proof of the universality of the deluge, although I am not ignorant that some have attributed their position to other causes. It has, however, been ascertained that the foundation of the castle of Penco was so low in 1835 or at so inconsiderable an elevation above the highest spring tides as to discountenance the idea of any permanent upheaval in modern times on the site of that ancient port. But no exact measures or levelings appears as yet to have been made to determine this point, which is the more worthy of investigation, because it may throw some light on an opinion often promulgated of late years that there is a tendency in the Chilean coast, after each upheaval, to sink gradually and return towards its former position. End of part one.